Welcome to What Do You Think? I'm Al. And I'm C. And today we are reviewing the life of the world's greatest man, according to some hard, hard, hardcore uh, trads online, <laughs> or the world's worst man, according to a lot of old British people. Uh, C, where do you where do you fall on the debate? I put him as one of the most fascinating historical figures alive. I use the word fascinating because it's hard to... No, he was not a great person, personally or otherwise. But who are we talking about today, Al? We're talking about Barney the Dinosaur, obviously. No, I thought we were talking about um, about uh, the Teletubbies. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But, but, but I guess no, you could say... We're talking about Clifford the Big Red Dog, folks. Uh, I mean, you can you can call him a Teletubby. Uh, we're actually he had talking a purse. about. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, he did have a purse. He he had a really weird looking hat. Um, <laughs> we're actually talking about Napoleon Bonaparte, specifically uh, the film uh, historical retelling, his historical epic of his life, as told by Ridley Scott in Ridley Scott's Napoleon, starring arguably one of the great American actors working today. Joaquin Phoenix. Although uh, you said historical retelling, that's that's a bit of a stretch, but we'll get to that. Listen, in a that's 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 some controversy right there. <laughs> I know, it's actually <laughs> a major sticking point. So, so he pissed off a lot of folks, people with that. Folks, listen, <laughs> if if you've been on the internet, mm-hmm. I ask why. I get it, cute cat pictures, but why? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're not a political podcast. We're not no. a we're not a social commentary podcast. Far from mm-hmm. it. I will say this. If you've been on the internet for the past few years, you've noticed that there's been this trend of fandom towards uh, uh, men who were of great, you can either say renown or infamy in Western history. I can hear the Giga Chad music playing in the background of the overly slowed down uh, TikTok already. Like, like, you got uh, Julius Caesar fans. If I hear that line, I'll be the first to acknowledge a mistake. I simply never do. One more time, next to like a deep gurgling bass, I'm going to jump off a bridge. I mean, so so yeah, you got fans yeah. of Julius Caesar. You got fans of, of, of uh, what's the, the guy who kind of invented uh, Roman Christianity? Uh, oh, uh, Constantine. Constantine. You got fans of of saint augustus you got fans of winston churchill but you more than sorry yeah um and then you you, like i'll just put it this way i have also seen people who've been like actually general franco wasn't a bad guy you should you should probably block those people but by far but by far by far the guy with the biggest army of fans online yeah, def- he definitely is like the second biggest with the he wasn't such a bad dude. Like, yeah, the Hitler ones are the louder ones, but he's got more. Napoleon's got more of them. Yeah. So so Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, emperor, former emperor of Genghis France. Khan. That's the other one. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Geng- well, Genghis Khan is not Western. uh no civilization, but like, but, but you know, uh, yeah, I get what you mean. They get into him. <laughs> no, do. yeah, the, the the guy the the guys in the Pacific, uh, the 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 internet guys in the Pacific are really into Genghis Khan. But point point is is that Napoleon has kind of developed this fan base for reasons that we couldn't even begin to explain. But he has a fan base, and they are loud, and they are passionate. They are very very passionate, and. Uh, this movie ran into controversy because an older British guy basically was like, I want to make a movie about this French guy who I really don't have a high opinion of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have 10 hours to tell his story. So I'm going to kind of make an amalgamation of the greatest hits of his life. Yeah. And uh, he was, listen, Ridley Scott, you can say a lot of things about Ridley Scott. The man oh, is yeah. direct and to the point. Mm-hmm. And he usually says it while cursing. Yeah. And let's just say his blunt way of basically telling people, this is not a flattering portrait of Napoleon. And uh, it's not going to be. He'll tell oh, you what you're supposed to think of his movies for the yeah, record. Yeah. He does not give a fuck. Yeah. He's basically like, this is not going to be a flattering uh, tale of Napoleon. And uh 
I'm going to mix and match a lot of stuff that's happened in, and I'm going to make some stuff up because this is a, this is entertainment first and it, it's nowhere near a history lesson. He cut that, out a he cut out a whole war in this movie. Yeah, and the Napoleon fanboys were mad. The yeah. Napoleon fa- like he, here's the crazy thing. The Napoleon fanboys were so mad about this movie that if you even admitted to having seen it like and not walked out in the first like 10 minutes, yeah. like they would harass you nonstop. Yeah. And and listen, folks, I get it. He's their hero. They, they see him as a symbol of something that's long been lost. But, guys, it's a Fascism. movie. Fascism. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's not, that's not long been lost, for the record. But not, we're not political. We're not political. I'm we're sorry. not political. We're not political. Sorry. But sorry. listen, listen. Let, let's, let's kind of move on from that subject. Yeah. There's controversy. Uh, Ridley Scott told them to go fuck themselves, as he's uh, done a few times with this movie. Didn't he do that with uh with Exodus Gods and Kings? People had yeah. issue with it, and he's oh, like, "Go yeah. fuck yourself." Oh yeah, he literally Pretty... tweeted out, "Fuck off." It's what he Pretty literally. Much. Pretty you much. can find it. He told you to fuck off. Yeah, pretty much. They didn't like it. Uh, but you know, um. So with that being said, uh, just kind of a bit of of some background. Uh, Ridley Scott's in his eighties, and he's been keen. He's always been king on the Napoleonic War era of Europe. I mean, for God's sakes, his first film took place during the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. uh, The Duelist, which oh, sorry, sorry. C and I saw, and we were like, here's the thing, folks. Yes. On almost accident in a weird way, but yeah. Folks, yes. Alien, one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, Blade Runner, Changed the game in science fiction. Yeah, one um, of my favorite movies ever. True. Uh, uh, Black Hawk Down. Pretty much any movie based in the Middle East owes its existence to Black Hawk Down. Gladiator. Gla- guess Gla- what? <laughs> Gladiator literally revived a, a dead, not a dying, a dead genre in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like Ridley Scott. American Gangster. Not as appreciated, but now people look back at it and are like, "Holy shit." People forget that he kind of sort of discovered Brad Pitt in Thelma and Louise. Uh, oh, yeah, he did. Uh, um, you know. Oh, yeah, he did Thelma and Louise. I forgot he did Thelma and Louise. <laughs> I just don't associate him. Not that it's a bad movie. It's just like you don't realize that he did that. Oh, my I mean, God. It, yeah. The, the, the... He's also, folks, responsible for what, what was the, the first ever super, quote unquote Super Bowl commercial for the first time where it was like a special interest yeah, commercial the, the, during the Super the, Bowl. The the iMac, right? It was it was the, the Macintosh ni- commercial. The nineteen eighty five Macintosh commercial. Yeah. It's a very yeah. Google it, it's a very famous commercial. And guess what? That commercial still kinda fucks. It's really good. So listen, Ridley Scott's been around for a while. Like let's put it to you this way. Let's put it to you this way. There are Christopher Nolan says there are two filmmakers that he he gets like giddy when he sees. Mm-hmm. Michael Mann and Ridley Scott. Like, to the point that he's been, like, Ridley Scott curses every time he sees me because he's like, oh, God, this guy's going to follow me around like a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks he's – well, yeah, because Ridley Scott is – Ridley Scott doesn't like his fans. So <laughs> there's that, too. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. Um, so Ridley Scott is up there with the iconic filmmakers of this era. And, th- like, he started making films, like, in his 50s because he was just stuck doing commercials and music mm-hmm. videos – and he took it upon himself. He wrote the script for the duelists and he gathered his own money. Like, what was it? Half a million dollars? This was, it was three quarters of a million dollars that he painstakingly raised back in the 70s, folks. Okay. Wait, 70s? Late 70s. Yeah, 70s, yep. Mid, mid late oh yeah it came out the same year as Star Wars. That's yeah, why no one saw it. That's why no one watched it for the record. Yeah. Um, he scrounges together half a million dollars and takes a long time to film it because he, you know, he's doing this by himself. And folks, I'm sorry. We just need to take a moment to talk about the duelists. What he does with three quarters of a million dollars in the 70s looks, this fucking movie, and I'm not kidding, looks as good as Barry Lyndon, okay? 
Barry Lyndon is a historical epic by uh, Stanley Kubrick and is famous for being basically look where the, the term every frame of painting kind of started to get coined a little bit in this or at least became more popular because literally that was his goal Stanley Cooper's goal but somehow this movie for a 16th fraction of the budget looks just as good with way better action sequences Mm -hmm. like by a long shot also possibly some of the greatest sound design I've ever heard in a fucking movie ever oh yeah oh yeah it's so good also like probably has one of my favorite third acts it's so good. Sorry. And one of the best, like, fuck you monologues in a movie. <sighs> I remember I remember telling C, like, I was like, that's one of the best fuck you monologues I've ever heard. And mm-hmm. I, I play it sometimes because I'm like, that, that's just, that's how, you, that's how you tell someone to go fuck themselves. But and not it just, just felt... that, that the, op- okay, for the record, The Duelist is basically, takes place uh, we're going to read the name of this episode of The Duelists in a moment, but we'll be fast, folks. Deal with it. The Duelists t- is about these two dueling uh, fencemen. Is that the word you call it? No, they're, uh, they're cavalrymen. They're cavalrymen, that's right. During the Napoleonic era of France. And they get into a duel. And basically throughout their lives, they keep continuing this duel because it's a duel to the death. But... Various things interrupt it, and they keep coming back. And whenever they come into contact with each other, they must continue the duel. Um, and the opening fight, which is not between them, it's between two, it's between one of them and someone else, is not only just painstaking in the way you watch it, but there is a, a moment, and I'm I'm gonna be a bit spoilery here, not even just for this scene, where he manages to cut the other guy's arm slide the blade through the arm across and his fighting hand. And you hear the sound of what sounds like wet paper being obtusely ripped from a from something. And yet when it happened, both Al and I grabbed our arms because we could feel that sword running through the not vein but the tendon of our arm oh. it was so intense it, that's my point being folks is ridley scott's first movie because there's a point to all of this that i'm saying ridley scott's came out the gate with such incredible ability and talent and just ah uh, so so incredible that there's no way that this man will not be re- will not be remembered as one of the greatest directors. Okay? He's made too many good movies to not be considered that. Yeah. He um and kind of running it back to Napoleon. Yes, yes. He I'm he's sorry. he said for a long time like I'm really interested in making a movie about Napoleon and The Duelist was kind of like my test run. Mm-hmm. Um and, but he, you know, there were always some. There's a, there was always another project that he wanted to focus on. He's like, oh well, this or oh well, this, because he says that he says that it was a mix of like not knowing who to cast as Napoleon Bonaparte. It was a mix of not knowing what will the story be exactly, because there's there's got to be a story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was many many things. Eventually, uh, he had just worked with uh, writer David Scarpa on All the Money in the World, uh, which you know it's underrated, especially with. If once you have the context of that production, you're actually quite impressed with what Ridley Scott was able to pull off. Yeah. Um, and David Scarper says, like, how about if we we approached the life of Napoleon by this angle? Ridley Scott absolutely loved it. And he realized if we're approaching it this way, I know exactly who to cast. Mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix. And then it was just a it was just a measure of getting the schedules to work. And they finally worked. Ironically enough, the pandemic made things easier. It did. And, <laughs> I forgot it made it easier. And uh, because Wicked Phoenix is now a very, very busy man. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we have one of Ridley Scott's uh, checking off the list of passion projects he had, which was telling the story of Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he mentioned that there is a, there is, he called it a, he called it a shout out. 
there's basically like a bit of fan service for those that loved uh, the duelists. Because the there polling. are fans out there. There are crazy yeah, fans like there, us out there. Yeah, there's there's a shout out when when C was like, I didn't see it, and I was like, Oh, did did he cut it or something? And then I'm watching the movie and I'm like, No, it's it's right. It's so obvious. It's right there. It's I fucking miss. And when you told it to me, I was so pissed <laughs> that I like didn't put that together. Where you're like, Oh my god. Ba- basically, 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 what it is is that uh, Napoleon enter. Basically, there's a scene in the Duelists. And uh, they do something on a battlefield, and then they leave. And basically, in Napoleon, uh, Napoleon walks in on the aftermath of that scene and goes mm. like, "Oh my God, the enemy's nearby." Mm. And and it's like such a perfect recreation. I was like, "My God!" Like 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 you compare it with the with this with how this the set looked on the Duelist, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's so perfect." They even got the furs right. Oh my God. But anyway, um, so. Passion project for Ridley Scott. Subject matter is pretty co- about a very controversial man in history, and uh, you know, this film is like one thing we didn't mention was that this film was basically funded by Apple. Uh, Apple pretty much fucking bankrolled by them. Yeah, Apple pretty much went to all the big directors in Hollywood and was like, "What's your dream project? We will make it," and. Uh, Martin Scorsese, hot off of working with Netflix, goes like, well, not even Netflix wants to make Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll make it. That's what Apple says. And really, Scott goes like, fuck you guys. Make my Napoleon. And they're like, okay, sir. Yes, sir. With with Joaquin (laughs) Phoenix, who can be a difficult actor to work with. And even because he, fun fact, folks, people, well, most people remember Ridley Scott worked with Joaquin Phoenix in another movie called Gladiator, and they had a miserable time together. Famously. But but Apple was like, we don't care, we'll do it. And then really Scott like, oh, also by the way, uh, my dire- my director's cut's probably gonna be like twice as long, and you got to release that too. And Apple was like, uh, okay, the, great. Their one their one deal was Apple can control when that's released. I think that was exactly part of the deal. that was that was the deal where where they were like, okay, there'll be a theatrical cut, and then we'll do director streaming with your with your director's cut. And really Scott agreed. And we're still waiting for that. We still are. Uh, so see, how's about we watch the trailer, which I got to admit was a pretty good trailer. And then we get started with our review on Napoleon. Yes. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. Must make an example, or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. This costume you have on. This is my uniform. I led the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life has changed, Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? This vermin has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. forces against me. What's the outcome of this if you don't succeed? Your Majesty, we are discovered. Good. Oh, it's a trap! I'm the 
the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. You're right, Al. That is a great trailer. Can't lie. Yeah. It's um, too bad the movie isn't entirely like that. No, no it's not. It, it totally is not. Yeah, it's... <laughs> um, so, uh, folks, uh, in that trailer, you probably heard a voice of a seductive woman speaking mm -hmm. with Napoleon. That is Vanessa Kirby playing the first wife of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, Josephine. Josephine Bonaparte. Yes. Uh, so, like we stated earlier, this movie had some controversy in regards to the historical accuracy of the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, but once the movie was released, or once actually the reviews came out on the movie, the controversy kind of grew in scope in the sense that, well, really, the first three quarters of the movie aren't about Napoleon and his military exploits or put it different. Let me put it different. The first th three quarters of the movie aren't just about Napoleon's military victories and rise to power and eventual, uh, an eventual dominance of continental Europe. Like there's the, it's there, but the vast majority of those first three quarters is, uh, his dysfunctional romance with his wife, Josephine Bonaparte. And not a lot of people were happy when they realized like, oh, the angle that Dave Scarpa and uh, Ridley Scott decided to take is, let's analyze Joaquin Phoenix through the lens of his relationship with Josephine. Mm -hmm. And obviously that, because that's the focus of the film, uh, while Ridley Scott still goes like, okay, let's show epic battle scenes. Let's show his rise to power. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of secondary to this element of the movie. And that just... Which you wouldn't have known from the trailer. You would all. not have known from the trailer. And it, uh, it really uh, rubbed people the wrong way, especially because Ridley Scott presents Napoleon's, uh, Napoleon's relationship with Josephine as pretty much him being a cuckold simp to Josephine. Mm -hmm. And that definitely rubbed the Napoleon fanboys the wrong way. There was this whole, there was this whole hubbub of like, is really Scott making like a, so, like a social statement about like strong men? Because the, the whole idea is like, he's castrating who it was, who is considered one of the strongest and most manliest men in Western civilization. Um, there were all these like all these debates about it and here's all I'll say and I think C will agree with me mm -hmm. it's not that that angle of Napoleon was kind of a simp for Josephine is necessarily bad it just stops becoming interesting after the first 10 minutes of it mm -hmm. and it's made all the more less interesting when Ridley Scott shows you the political intrigue, shows you his rise to power, shows you the famed battle scenes of the Napoleonic Wars. And then immediately is like, okay, but now back to this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, fuck, really? When can this go away? And, and it's three if you and a half hours. It's it's three hours. How long was this movie? Two and a half hours. Oh, two and a half. It felt longer. I hate to admit it. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you know the history of Napoleon and Josephine, you know that that's eventually going to cease. Yeah, it doesn't right? end well for them. It's eventually going to cease. It's just that by the time you're like, okay, now they can move on and focus on the battles, on the, on the wars. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, the last 20 minutes of the movie. But then the movie kind of goes back to him and Josephine again. Yeah, it kind of does. But at least she's not on screen anymore. Oh, I probably said too much. But it, guys, this is history. You should know this. Yeah, we know what um, happens. For the record, her actual story is very sad. It's it's unfortunate. Yeah, but yeah. anyways. Uh, I, I would say I would say something else that doesn't help is that. And I think, you know, an uh, actor of Joaquin Phoenix's caliber He's not a guy who goes like who goes to the director and is like, okay, how am I gonna play this? He's the he's the actor who goes to the director and is like, okay, we need to work out this character. It's a partnership. We need to figure out 
what he's about, what why he does what he does, and who who is this guy. That's the type of actor what King Phoenix is. Mm-hmm. And it's very apparent that the way he decided to play or portray Napoleon Bonaparte with input and approval from Ridley Scott was the man's kind of a a a good soldier who kind of bumbled his way into greatness Mm -hmm. and that definitely definitely is something that no Napoleon fanboy would want to see yeah they they really do buy into the Kool-Aid of the greatness of Napoleon Mm -hmm. and when the first battle scene is basically Napoleon slips on a pool of blood, kind of fucks up his uniform and is very lucky and not being stabbed by a sword by the British, a British soldier, a random British soldier. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, oh, is this what Napoleon's going to be like throughout the entire movie? Because a lot of people are not going to be happy about that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do you think about what I just said? See, do you agree? Do you disagree? Is there something else you'd like to add? So I think for me, the thing with this was, so here's how, I'm going to just frame what I felt while seeing this. And I mean no shade against a director that I'm making this comparison to, okay? Yeah. You've seen Ken Burns documentaries, right? Of course. Okay, they're great, right? I like them. They're very well made. They're, when when got, it's a subject matter you like, they're great. When it's, yes. a subject, when it's a subject matter you don't really care for, like baseball, you fall asleep, I would say. Sure. But, okay, that's that's another fair point. But truly, like, if you if you were in high school or middle school and you wanted to learn about the Civil War, guess what they did? Ken Burns and Civil War. Yeah, and guess what? It's a great documentary, okay? I am saying this because... We have these interviews, like he inter, Ken Burns, what makes him work is he intercuts these interviews with these reenactments with then monologue of, with images in the background and music. He kind of like gets you into the environment a bit, but through multiple mediums of the documentary way. You know what I'm saying? Kind of. Yeah. Can you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. Yeah. What Napoleon was to me was, Hey, you know, those reenactments we do in Ken Burns, Let's do two hour, two and a half hours of just that. Just that. That's it. Okay? Where it's good. It's well made. It's well shot. It's good acting too. But you realize it only works because we ha- we're intercutting between a narrator or a monologue or a, not a monologue, a narrator or an interview of some historic person providing us the context. Like we're being given the overarching thing that gives us the reason for this frankly exaggerated performance at times. That's sort of what makes that work. What Napoleon is, is all the exaggeration and twice the money, but none of the explanation. That's what this movie was to me. And I just got frustrated with it. That and like, I knew this was going to be shot in digital, but I really wanted this to look like one of those epics, you know, that I'm talking about. Yeah, like Waterloo. Like Waterloo. Like, this has to look right. This has to... If you do this a certain... And here's the thing. Ridley Scott has done historic... He is a king of historical epics. Not just um, the duelists, but uh, we've mentioned Gladiator, The Last Duel, Kingdom of Heaven, for fuck's sake. That movie is amazing. Uh, He knows... One thing Ridley Scott's really good at with historical epics is he knows how to make history look lived in, looked operated in. He's not afraid to show the grime, uh, the dirt of it all. He doesn't make it look pristine. He makes it look honest. And that actually brings more life to it. That's what's amazing. And what I was annoyed by is, yes, he does that in Napoleon, but the problem is because it's digital, it all somehow to me looked so fucking staged the entire time. But if you had the grain of celluloid, I think I would have accepted it more. But I, I'm, I'm, it's like I see where he's placing the soldiers. I see where he's placing everything. I see him setting everything up in a certain way. So that, that was my main issue with this is it all just seemed so rehearsed and staged and set up without any context and without any, um, you know, without any context. And that was my main gripe with it. I do see where you're coming from about the, fo- the, the, the shocking focus 
the shocking and constant focus on the relationship. Um, but I would go so far as to say it wasn't just his relationship with her. It was like just half of it was was him in domestic life at the palace. And I'm like, we don't need that much of this. This no, is too much. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. I here's here's the thing, and let me ask you. Let me posit to you a question. See, sure. Can movies about unlikable losers work? Yeah. Okay, let's talk I about. Let, let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about a pair of filmmakers who are no longer working together. Who oh, that was kind of their bread and heart. butter. Yeah. The the, the brothers. Yeah. Yeah, they made movies about unlikable losers. Mm-hmm. A good time, uh, heaven knows what, uh, uncut gems. Like these yeah, were not likable. These were not likable. I won't name them, but some of their early work, though rough, shows this talent too. Yeah, the trick to that was was that okay, the audience will not be able to relate to these assholes, and nothing they do is impressive. So what we're gonna do is that we're gonna tell, we're gonna put them in the middle of a story that's so chaotic. That the people can't look away because they're just trying to figure out, well, how is how is this asshole going to figure it out? It's like watching right? a train crash. Yeah, it's like watching a train crash. Um, what you don't do is if you're going to if, if your lead, if you're going to play your lead as this unlikable dumbass who kind of lucked his way into glory. And it's just him like either being uh, it's either him like like basically begging for attention from his wife, uh, being cheated on behind his back, uh, being kind of a weirdo in his domestic life, uh, not being like a, like a cringe inducing leader where he's trying to be inspirational, but it just comes off as just comes off as try hard. And you're like, okay. And, and basically it's like, okay, now he's here in a battle scene, just kind of looking at it. You're like the battle scenes is cool. Mm-hmm. You don't even see him plan it. You just see the the battle scene happening. Goes like I planned that, and you're just like you. I can't believe that. And the the battle scene's impressive, but you're still like I I I don't I I can't. You're so unlikable. I can't even associate that you had success here. Right? You know what it was like. You know those games like Age of Empires and um, Rome Total War, or you know what I'm talking about. You know the yeah. games. And, so yeah. it's it was like watching some, you know, teenager or young adult who enjoys those games complete and achieve those battles. It's like, yes, you did it, but it's a game. It's like the game gave you opportunities to achieve this. You didn't actually you did it, but in a very controlled environment. See, like you did, don't you, buy you it. saw. Did, did you ever see Waterloo? Yes, it's great. All right. And have you seen uh, you've seen Gettysburg, correct? No, I have not. You've never seen Gettysburg, really? I've never seen. I've never seen Gettysburg. Okay, so the the thing about Gettysburg and Waterloo is that they're about two big battles, right? Mm-hmm. And the the films make it a point to include scenes of the generals planning the battles, strategizing, figuring it out right as things seem about to be going bad. Like, oh my god, <laughs> this is how we win. But and here here's the here's the here's the trick. Like you have uh, actors like. Uh, like Jeff Daniels, you have actors like um, uh, the guy, the guy from uh, the, the 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 guy from um, the guy who played Napoleon in Waterloo. You have uh, oh, yeah. you have Martin Sheen. Yeah, they're super charismatic. They they make it a point to include scenes with their soldiers where you're like, oh, this this is why this guy is a leader of men. This is why. That's they also why, him. for the record, Waterloo is the reason why you maybe consider not doing a Napoleon movie because even though it doesn't cover his life, it's like you you it's hard to do better than that. And here's the thing: those movies make it a point to include this. And listen, I get why Ridley Scott doesn't include this here. Ridley Scott is making a critique of Napoleon. He's saying like, no, this is what he really was. But then the thing is, is like, okay, if this is what he really is, I don't want to spend two and a half hours with him. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I, I don't. Like, like Joaquin Phoenix. It's like you're rewarding it, the bad behavior almost. It's like, wait a minute. Well, you just, you're just not interested in, in watching him. Like after 10 minutes, you're kind of like, okay, this guy's a loser. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is a very deliberate actor. He obviously agreed with the angle Ridley Scott wanted to present Napoleon. But the thing is, is that like Joaquin Phoenix is a really good actor. 
So if he's like, I want to make this guy unlikable, he can do that. He makes him unlikable. He, I hate to say, he kind of makes him seem almost like, like he's kind of on the spectrum. Did you get that vibe? I won't go that far. Like, like very like, like unsociable, like definitely un- unsocial, definitely unsocial. I saw that a lot. Like, in, like not very sociable. Doesn't seem to understand people where you're like, you kind of need to understand people in order to be emperor. Well, that was also because I think he was taking from the fact that there were occasional uh, documents suggesting that he pretty he wasn't very personable. But also, what people forget is all those documents that saying he wasn't very personable or very nice were all written by people who hated him. And yeah, also like twenty years after his death, and like a lot of soldiers would say like I would die for this man because he was just like me. He he was one of the guys. Yeah. And we never get a scene of that in this movie where he's just one of the soldiers. You know what actually really describes Napoleon but in a it's it's not entirely correct but you remember in the Flintstones movie Hear Me Out where he gets promoted and he looks outside the window and says hi to all the workers and they're all like so happy to see him. That's yeah. really what it was. He couldn't relate to the upper echelon class but he absolutely related to the soldiers. Like, like, really, Scott makes it a point to talk about, like, that Napoleon came from the lower caste and wasn't even technically French, mm-hmm. but he kind of makes it seem as, like, an indictment on Napoleon. Like, yeah, this lower class rube from Corsica obviously wasn't a leader of men. And I'm like, is, is that kind of the message you want to give, that this lower class guy obviously could not be the great man that history books allege that he was? Like, okay, that's a little classist, but okay. Um, but kind of going back to the crux of this movie, the relationship between Josephine and Napoleon. Um, listen, I'm not a Napoleon historian. Far from it. I just know from the little books I've read when I was in high school. Um, as far as I can tell, Na- like it is well documented that Napoleon, I think one of the few pop cultural things that is known about Napoleon is that he did have an obsession with his first wife, Josephine, mm-hmm. to the point that he was so reluctant to get it. Because, because, and again, folks, this isn't a spoiler. This is history. He had to divorce his first wife because it became apparent that she was barren. She could no mm-hmm. longer have children. Yeah. And he was emperor of France. He was yeah. the, he was monarchy. He needed one, a son. The one thing the monarchy needed to do, it could not do. Yeah. So he was so like reluctant to divorce Josephine that people were like, is this guy crazy? Like just get a younger, hotter woman. Why, what, why is he doing this? And that's why that, that pop cultural element of like, Oh, Napoleon was like obsessed with Josephine is still so like long lasting. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. The movie presents it as that he is <coughs> head over heels in love with her, obsessed with her. Willing to forgive her sleeping with other men because he's so in love with her. He's basically a simp. He literally, she can literally like snap her fingers and he'll like leave, leave the battlefield and just come to her just so she can like, like sexually, like sexually belittle him. And basically she kind of acts like his dominatrix almost in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's the thing, as far as I can tell. In reality, in history, the historical Napoleon Bonaparte was obsessed with Josephine. But and and he says he loved her. I mean that that was the last word he said when he when he was alive. He, he died saying Josephine. Mm-hmm. So he he did love her. But from the letters from people who knew them, it was more that he had an obsession with her. The the way a a he, he was basically always horny for her is the mm-hmm. best way I can put it in yeah. the sense that like he had these weird, he didn't fetish- love her. He lusted her. He lusted well, he, her. he did love her. Oh yeah, he did. He, but, but, but he, in a very, in a very specific way. Yeah. He, he had these weird fetishes and she was basically the, the, she was basically like the perfect representation of all his fetishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one being that, he he loved having sex with unbathed women and he and this he wrote a letter about this saying like mm-hmm. he doesn't want her to bathe because when she smells it's the most perfect smell mm, pretty much the obsession came from the fact that he just loved loved screwing her 
like yeah. loved screwing her and he hated the idea that if he divorced her that basically it was going to get in the way of him screwing her mm-hmm. he also liked to i heard that he basically liked to have sex with her in front of the servants like that yeah, was the yeah, thing he liked yeah, to do that, that well. was another fetish obviously most 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 women especially if they're aware of social norms in napoleonic france are going to be like no fuck that i'm not doing that she came from a more libertine class of woman in france Mm -hmm. so she was like oh that's kinky yeah so basically it was like she she has a good smell when i when she doesn't bathe and she like she allows me to have sex she she allows me to have sex with her in front of other people Mm -hmm. um this wasn't this thing of like him being a simp for her. He was just a perv. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the movie presented as like, no, he's a, he's like a little puppy, always following her around, stumbling over his words. Like, it, it, and that's kind of the thing with this movie. Ridley Scott basically posits, makes the, th- makes the theory that Napoleon only did great things because at first he wanted to impress his mom. Mm hmm. And then he became Emperor of France just to impress Josephine, you know. Just he kind impress- of took a he kind of took a Citizen Kane approach to it almost. <laughs> yeah, and listen, that's fine. But when you're basically turning your protagonist into a loser who who basically follows after a woman who she loves him but she doesn't really need him, mm-hmm. do you really want to watch that for two and a half hours? Especially when then there's like these little these little morsels of epic battle scenes of 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 political intrigue and you're like I want more of that I really don't really want more of this. The other but, thing it ha- that happens with this is well sorry I'm sorry I keep no no continue you. continue because we now know that there is a four hour cut of this there are certain more so in the first act than the others or at least first act and parts of the second the first half of the second act where it is clear and obvious through really weird editing choices that there was chunks were missing like a lot and, and, like, and that's kind of the other frustrating thing as i was watching this i'm like did really scott cut like the stuff most people want to see just to focus on this dysfunctional relationship is that what this is and you realize like that's probably what happened yeah and it just makes for a not as good a viewing experience now the four-hour cut probably doesn't fix the fact that Poking Phoenix plays Napoleon as a loser. But That's what it pro- might fix is it balances the near like hour and a half of Josephine and Napoleon Power Hour with an extra two hours of epic stuff. That's what it yeah. might do, That's and that the- might actually make it work. Yeah, that that's what it might be. And listen, I think everyone's owed their interpretation of a historical figure. I mean. That's really much what biopics are. Is like, what does this particular filmmaker think about this particular figure? Like, obviously, uh, Spike Lee had a reverence for Malcolm X. So his his biography of Malcolm X is very, very much like, very much seeds its interpretation to the most positive outlook of Malcolm X. You mm-hmm. know, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, like you have a. Spielberg obviously really, really respected Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So in his biopic of Lincoln, Lincoln's almost seen like a like a angel figure, like a like a like a heavenly figure who's above the mere normal politicians of Washington during the Civil War. Right? Like every time Daniel Day Lewis is in the frame, it's always this thing where people are like, Oh my god, it's the president, the greatest man in the world. And that's or, fine. An actual another great example of this is Richard Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. He treats Gandhi the same way with such reverence. It works very well, but it's it's another example of that where you can tell Richard Attenborough just respected the hell out of what Gandhi achieved and wanted to demonstrate that in such a loving way. So and then then you kind of have the opposite of that, where obviously in Downfall, the director portrays Hitler as a preening little psychotic uh, prima donna who and it works. It works. I mean, the scene, the scene is the most iconic scene in that movie is is a, is a meme. Yep. Um. You have uh, you have uh, uh. It's not a biopic, but uh, uh. Pan's Labyrinth pretty much shows you what uh Guillermo del Toro thinks about fascist uh, armies. 
And um, what do you think of Franco? Basically, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. What do you think of Franco? And uh, Raging Bull, like Scorsese, has re- Scorsese's being respectful about uh, about uh, 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 the the boxer in that movie. I forget his name. Um, oh yeah. But you can definitely tell he's like, yeah. But this guy, this guy deserves to kind of, this guy deserves to be a, a laughing stock at the very end, mm-hmm. right? I guess like. I'm not saying that this movie would be better if Ridley Scott like was like a Napoleon fanboy who was like, oh, let me give this guy the reverence he deserves. I'm just saying, if you're going to make a critique, make your critique. But there's still a way to make the character compelling. And I feel like he's just so focused on critiquing how much he doesn't like Napoleon that he's like, well, I don't want to make him interesting. That People will think that I support him. I'm like, Ridley Scott, you've, you've been doing this for decades now. Like, you know that, like, like even a villain has to be compelling. And he's well, made like, some great villains. Another, oh, of course he has. <laughs> I mean, Frank Lucas, my fucking God. Yeah. American gangster. Holy shit. Um, he, so here's what, here's what got to me. Somehow, Ridley Scott nails the moral, religious, and political complexity of the Crusades in the Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. Where he genuinely shows how there were no good sides, basically. So, or everyone had an agenda in that in that era, basically. That's how he kind of handles it. Mm-hmm. And regardless of anyone's opinions, that movie sends that message very well, sends it in a very powerful way, and you respect the conviction of that message in that movie. Now, that is a far more Doing a movie, a good movie about the Crusades, where everyone liked it, even though arguably, you know, it was almost political suicide to when he made it to make to demonstrate a certain side winning at the end of the day. Like that that was that was very dangerous for him to do back then. You know, nobody noticed because the theatrical cut got butchered, but that's a different story for another time. But that is far more difficult to achieve than just Oh yeah, let's make let's do this epic Napoleon movie. Anyone can do that. Like not anyone, obviously, but it's a much easier thing to grapple with. So it is shocking that he, if 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 you if he is worried about how what people, um, like would think of him for viewing, um, Napoleon a certain way, or like oh I'm worried or just presenting him as competent. Yeah, it's like well. A in the world of cinephiles, that's not what we know you to be, buddy. Like you don't, you you don't give a fuck. Like that's sort of what you are in certain ways. Um, but like it's just so surprising that he took that approach. That when he intentionally hasn't for so many of his other work, and I'm just trying to understand. Do you think this is something that? And I don't blame him for this part, but do you think that this is something he sat too long on and he got into his own head a bit? I like, so I'm sure you're aware, see, that uh, Steven Spielberg is making a TV miniseries that is basically ba- so basically uh, before he died, uh, the great Stanley Kubrick wrote a script about mm-hmm. Napoleon. His yes. his next film was going to be a, a film about Napoleon. He died. Uh, it was going to be the film he made after uh, AI, artificial yep. intelligence, uh, but he died and. Uh, 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 Steven Spielberg took it upon himself to finish Artificial Intelligence and he says okay I'm going to sit on this Napoleon script because it's very very dense uh, and now he's going to turn it into a TV miniseries they, they've, because the script is so big they can do that mm-hmm. my theory is that Ridley Scott got a chance to read that script because I'm, sh- I'm sure he can get his oh, hands on it he had access he, yeah he, I'm, I believe he probably says oh they're, they're probably going to do Napoleon is a great man angle and I, I don't I mean, A, I don't want to do that on my movie because I don't like the man. But B, I definitely got to find it, like, make my Napoleon as differentiated as much as possible. And that's my theory because they're going to be shooting, if they're not already shooting, the the Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, Napoleon TV miniseries now. I don't know who think has, but that's my theory. That may be. And we know that Kubrick's approach, he had a cabinet like an actual furniture cabinet dedicated to on these note cards about Napoleon. Cause Kubrick, if anything was meticulous as we know, oh, of course, yeah, like to, to an anal degree. Um, 
And we know that he basically took this cabinet and, and with drawers inside of it, and he put note cards of everything that happened in Napoleon's life. And he color-coordinated it based on the significance and the importance. And then apparently what he did, I'm not making this up, he took the cards and on the floor, scene by scene, he laid them out in the order in which he wanted them to happen in the movie. Because from what we understand, and we don't know this for sure, but apparently uh, what what um, Kubrick wanted to do was he wanted to tell it very much out of order throughout the entire movie. Like he, he wanted to go all over the place, back and forth. Basically, he wanted to tell the beginning and the end simultaneously and end in the middle. We don't know 100% if this is true, but it seems to be the case that that's what he wanted to do, which in my opinion has the potential to be fucking brilliant, but sadly he passed away. And the squirt, the squirt, wow. And the script he wrote was the equivalent of not even a full script. It was just a giant 300-page essay where he basically, because Napoleon at this point, or fudge, because Kubrick was becoming at this point very ill, he just wrote in the form of an essay what he wanted to happen. Like, apparently I heard it's like, the way it reads, it's like, and then this, and then that, and then this, and then that, because he just didn't, he... He could not anymore. Like, it was too much. Mm-hmm. But apparently it's 300 pages of that from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So, now, yeah. So, so yeah. Um, I think maybe really Scott, because he knows that's coming, he wanted to differentiate it. I don't Ironically, know. it's not the first time something Ridley Scott does that then gets turned into a miniseries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're and right. And it's also with the same writer as this. Yeah. Which is yeah, weird. Yeah. That's so weird. Um, so, now that we've talked at length about yes. kind of the movie as a whole... Just kind of a little things. Um, listen, Vanessa Kirby does a great job as Josephine. She's kind of playing her as this dominatrix type figure, which is fine. Like, when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, she's probably going to get nominated, like win some awards for this. And then I saw the movie, I was like, no, no, there's maybe better. Not. Maybe not. Um, honestly, the uh, MVP of this movie is Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington. He's good. He puts his stamp on the role. Gives the Duke of Wellington a bit of flair. But who's going to uh, remember the Duke of Wellington in this, to be honest? I mean, he's the guy who beat Napoleon. That's no, literally I, his claim to I, fame. I understand that. I understand. And he does a good... Yes, he does a very good job. He puts his stamp on it. But, and, oh my and, God, that's and, a movie right there. Just the Duke of Wellington. <laughs> I mean, I, I would watch that because there's a... So there's a scene where the Duke of Wellington confronts Napoleon after the Battle of Waterloo. Mm-hmm. And it is such a well done scene because the Duke of Wellington is like, dude, you, really? You're acting, you're acting so confident. I literally just kicked your ass. What the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. like, and it's all just with the face. Like Napoleon's just talking like as if he won the battle. Yeah. And the Duke of Wellington's face, Rupert Everett does this really clever thing with his eyes, and I was like laughing because I'm like, oh my god, that's so funny. And mm-hmm. and he really was the bright spot of the movie because it was literally like he goes like. Well, you're playing Napoleon as incompetent. I'm going to play the Duke of Wellington as hyper-competent, but a little campy. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Listen, Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. And I can't not say that his his uh, his angle, his his uh, his technique, his his position as playing Napoleon. I mean, if this, this is definitely what he wanted to do and he succeeded. I just I just don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. But it is. Hey, it is a great performance if you agree with it. I was talking to someone who's like, oh, my God, Napoleon. Like, that was such an amazing performance. That was like like they were basically it's actually kind of funny. Uh, They were talking about poor things in Napoleon. And they said, oh, Emma Stone and King Phoenix. They were like, they had no problem being weird. I love it. Oh, it was great. And I was like. I had a problem with because I hadn't seen poor things at the time. I was like, I had a problem with Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon weird, but. I mean, if you like it, then you it speaks you, to you, then you do yeah. you. But I, I just didn't agree with it. Um, outside of that, the the rest of the cast is those three. Outside of those three, the rest of the cast is kind of forgettable. I, I think maybe that was the point. I don't know. There was a there was a moment I was lo- losing track of the guys with the with the black haired wigs or brown haired yeah. wigs. I was like, wait, yeah. who are you? Who are you? And, like and I was so starting to you, get confused. You alluded to this earlier today, but I would say that 
Listen, really, Scott is obviously a master technician. No one can deny that. He's worked mm-hmm. with some of the best editors, some of the best cinematographers in the business on both sides of the pond. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and this has been a problem since he embraced digital. Mm-hmm. It's becoming a, a crutch with him. Yeah. So, folks, the way he shoots is that he basically gets like around six to ten cameras fully decked out. And normally you're going to put a prime lens on it. You're going to put uh, you're going to put a because prime uh, like photography with prime lenses just look better. Uh, It's either going to be a prime, uh, uh, a prime anamorphic lens or a regular just standard prime. Right. That gives Mm -hmm. it not not, that gives it just the 16 by nine aspect ratio. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that because he likes moving fast. So what he does is that he puts zoom lenses on all his cameras so that uh, they can basically, basically he can have the maximum amount of coverage on a set. The thing with zoom lenses is that there's not as fast as prime lenses and therefore the image doesn't look as great. But because digital photography isn't as good as film, mm-hmm. the discrepancy isn't as bad. But things just look flatter. They look more washed out, at least to me, at least to me. No, I agree. hundred percent agree. And what he does is that now in all his films since really like, 2010 i think Mm -hmm. he just has like 10 cameras everywhere some are on a crane some are on a dolly there are like maybe two or this was really noticeable in prometheus for the record oh yeah yeah like everyone was like why does this not look as well shot as like his earlier stuff and that's what happens right so the blocking isn't as creative the photography is a bit flatter and just the coloring on this was very unimpressive flat gray yeah, drabby gray. And it was that thing where I was like... How do you make Egypt look flat? I'm sorry. How yeah, do you do that? Yeah. How do you make Egypt look flat? How do you... Like, like the the camera, the frame, the way the frame moves, the way the camera moves is competent, but it's not as creative as his earlier stuff. No, it's not. And I was like... And this, this, is, getting, this is getting into, like, the discussion we've had about these powerhouse directors who, you know... Aren't. Like, like Ridley Scott literally argues that he does it because, hey, it cuts my production schedule significantly and I can make more movies in my old age. And I'm like, dude, like, is that the goal? Is that the goal to just churn out movies like you, people would say your name in the same breath as Scorsese? They would say your name in the same breath as Spielberg. Like they like, should. Like, to a- your movies are an event. Like if you want to have a movie coming out every year. Okay, fine, but then you're kind of diluting yourself, and unfortunately, like, it, it, if you're so focused on just having a smallest, as short a schedule as possible, your work's gonna suffer. And I really did think it was noticeable here. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the stuff he cut out looks really, really great, and you're not wrong. Plays really, really great, but I don't know. I think it. So <laughs> I don't think it looks any different, obviously, but I do think maybe the maybe the so, folks. Ridley Scott and director's cuts, he is probably the, has the most famous relationship with director's cut. In fact, I would say his movie Blade Runner has the most famous director's cut situation. I won't go into the full history of it. You can see countless YouTube, video, YouTube videos about it. But to make a long story short, it wasn't until very recently that we got the finalized cut of Blade Runner. And guess what? It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But... There's at least four movies that I can think of where Ridley was not given his director's cut, and then when you look back at the director's cut, it is shocking how much better it is than the theatrical cut. I think it's Blade Runner and Kingdom of Heaven are the two most notable examples, but there are others as well. Point being, I I am hopeful for when this four-hour cut comes out, I will check it out, because I'm hopeful that at least maybe the tone, pacing, and story work better. But I'm not holding out for the fact that the actual digital flat cinematography is going to suddenly improve. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I I'm really disappointed because, like, Ridley Scott would tell you himself, like, I'm a I'm a visualist first. Cause he trained to be a painter, and I'm like, like like Akira Kurosawa, and I'm like, dude, there were some movies you made where the way you framed, like, competed with the best of Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. And now it's like it's so obvious that he's like, oh, put a camera there. Oh, you're going to have to put that other camera there because then the coverage of camera A is going to get into the coverage of camera B. 
and it's so apparent and it's just like I have not seen a creative Ridley Scott uh, shot in a long long time and that's that's a little disappointing that's a little mm-hmm. disappointing uh, so see how about we give our ratings so you the floor is yours <sighs> Uh, I I I give this a movie. A maybe, yeah. I give it a movie. I, I was trying to think of a clever thing to say, but I, I, I couldn't. It's 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 a movie. Yet you can't deny that it's it, there are interesting moments in it. But if you can tell, I'm kind of disappointed that it's just a movie. I was really hoping for something so much more. Um, I don't even want to say it's a movie where you long for more because that would imply that there was something to it that could have gone further. I, I Maybe I just don't have the heart to give it a meh because there are so many people involved that are doing interesting things with it. So it's a movie. This is a French meh to me. Really? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I got to be honest with you. Uh, it's just I, I had – I didn't find – Napoleon compelling I found him a loser a whiny loser at that a weirdo whiny loser at that and listen that's totally on me that's obviously there are people who watch the movie who disagree with me but I I just couldn't get into I was like this is the guy I'm going to be following for two and a half hours oh Mm -hmm. I'm not just following him I'm just seeing him kind of wail and whine for a wife who kind of really doesn't care about him um it you is know, also annoying when he would go around telling people how great he is. It's like, okay, we get it. Like he, he talks about being great, but we never see him being great because, yeah. again, Ridley Scott doesn't want to give you the idea that he uh, he agrees with this guy being great. Um, that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, I hope the four-hour cut is significantly better because if we have more scenes of him being a genuinely competent general, a genuinely competent – because people forget he – Napoleon overhauled French law. Mm-hmm. He overhauled French law to to be more consistent to make sense, and uh, like that actually has some that actually has some consequences here in America because the French code, the, the Napoleonic code, applied to the entirety of the French colonies in North America, mm-hmm. and uh, Louisiana, which was part of that, still follows that Napoleonic code to this day. They don't follow common law; they follow the Napoleonic code. And then, that is still wild. That is wild to me. Yeah, but so, like, listen, I'm not saying I'm not saying that Ridley Scott made a bad movie because he said Napoleon's not great. I'm saying he made a he made a bad movie because he said, "Hey, here's this whiny guy named Napoleon. Pay attention to him for two and a half hours." And I was like, I, 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 you I, know what it was? This movie because Napoleon was is one of the biggest examples where he had a lot of political cartoons about him in his lifetime. This was like that interpret like that interpretation of him almost. Yeah, I, I listen, and here's the thing, like you said, Ridley Scott is capable of being like, okay, let me show you like a complex political situation, like in the Crusades, like in uh here's the thing. The characters in all the money in the world were a little bit more interesting than this. Yeah. Hell, even um even the last duel had some very powerful emotional complexity. You, you know, it. you know what was more entertaining? House of Gucci. House of Gucci. Same idea of like showing a lot of a uh, particular loser character, but you know what? He was compelling. Mm-hmm. It because was because he was he was a loser in a funny way. He yeah. was a weirdo in a funny way that made me laugh. Paolo Gucci, poor Paolo. Exactly. No, no. What was his like? He's like. Do like, not mistake the difference between shit and chocolate. And believe me, I have tried. No, I know the difference. I know the di- I know the difference. <laughs> no. And it's like, do you? Shit. <laughs> well, how? But anyway, how? Yeah. the thing is, and listen, the thing is, is that on top of the fact that while this film is still a technical marvel, it's not inspiring. The, the creative dis- choices are so uninspiring. It's like... I'm sorry, Ridley Scott in his latest movies has become a bit of a of a of a movie factory. Say what you will about uh about Steven Soderbergh. Even though he literally tries to make a movie every two year. years, every two he's, years. he still makes it a point. Okay, there's gonna be one camera, I'm gonna make a shot list, I'm gonna try to figure out what's the best way to cover a scene with this one camera, yeah. and I'm gonna create crazy freaking shots that are gonna make people think like wow this steven soderbergh guy and then he comes up with he then comes up with hidden gems like no sudden move 
Exactly. Or or like, yeah, this is actually kind of funny. I remember, and listen, I'm not a giant fan of his movies, or at least on the technical aspect of his movies. He's, I would even argue he's kind of a point-and-shoot guy. But that's the thing. Ridley Scott was not a point-and-shoot guy at the beginning of his career. He was like the opposite of that, and now I feel like that's all he is now is the point-and-shoot guy. When, when the newest Woody Allen movie feels like it's less point-and-shoot than the newest Ridley Scott movie, Ooh. what the fuck are we doing? What yeah. the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Like Woody Allen literally says, I, I'm a filmmaker because my, my, I can only tell my stories through acting. Like mm-hmm. if I could, I'd be a novelist, but I can't. So this is mm-hmm. what I do. That's why his movies like outside of one or two don't really have a lot of like cinema, like crazy, like cinematography. Yeah. Now his last few movies are more creative on a photography level than Ridley Scott's. And guess what? They're not creative. So there's yeah. that too. But um, listen, maybe maybe the cut, the four-hour cut on Apple TV Plus is going to be better. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, anyway, anyway, this has been What Do You Think? I'm Al. <sighs> and I'm C. I do make mistakes, and I do admit to them all the time. No, you don't. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.